Well, good morning, everybody. Um, in these last days, uh, given the turmoil in the political sphere, given that we are in the midst of a pandemic which requires a lot of decision-making and a great deal of wisdom, perhaps in the last days we have felt the need for the political sphere and a good politics more than ever. And we've been thinking about politics more than ever. Certainly, if you watch TV, you will have felt that. Some Christians, historically and today, feel that a good Christian ought not to be engaged in politics. Some Christians believe that Jesus himself, our Lord, was not a political figure. But, sisters and brothers in Christ, as we will see throughout this Lent, Jesus Christ of Nazareth who was, as Liz read in the children's story, pursuing the kingdom of God, a kingdom, Jesus was actually irreducibly political, and Christians in this world today will be, whether we like it or not, irreducibly political. But what Mark will show us is that the way that Jesus engaged in politics and the way that we, his followers, are to be engaged in politics is going to be different. And the invitation this Lent is to be refined. It is to die to some old political ideas, perhaps, and to raise up, um, be raised up with the politics of Jesus, God willing, in the power of the Spirit. So we're going to work our way through Mark's passion narrative, beginning at chapter 13, There'll be five messages, the last of which will be on Easter Sunday in Mark chapter 16. We begin today with the entire chapter of Mark 13, which has been affectionately called Mark's mini-apocalypse. Among scholars, it is a text that has had more ink spilled on it than perhaps any other text in Mark and perhaps many other texts in the New Testament. It is difficult there have been a wide variety of interpretations as to what's going on here. And luckily for you, I'm going to give you the right interpretation this morning. Lord willing. <laughs> but let's go and take a look at the text first, and then we'll jump into it. Beloved, listen to God's word. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, or for you Greek scholars, Ego, Amy, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumor of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of earth birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you'll stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at that time. 
for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against, rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So, be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the end of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servant in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say, I say to everybody, watch. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One day, years ago now, before there were cars or trucks or any automobiles on the road, a man had a need to go and get a better means of transport. So he went to the best horse dealer in town, a Christian who was reputed to train horses in incredible ways, perfectly obedient horses, strong, and sometimes in creative ways. He went to this man and he asked for his best horse and he said, well, I have just finished training one. It is a very, very good one. And I've built it to obey you in a kind of interesting way. All you have to do to get it to go is to say, praise the Lord, and it'll start moving. And if you say, praise the Lord again, it'll move even faster. And then, in order to get the horse to stop, all you need to say is, amen, and it will come to an abrupt halt. 
The man said, well, I trust you. I've heard about your reputation. And he paid him the money, stood up on the stirrups, got on the saddle, and off he went. Sure enough, as he went, he said, praise the Lord. And the horse started trotting a little bit. He said, praise the Lord again, and it started going a little bit faster. He said, praise the Lord a third time, having some fun now, and it was in a full gallop. This man didn't know the area very well, and he noticed that he was coming to the edge of a cliff, and he got all muddled, and he got confused, and instead of saying amen, he said, praise the Lord, and the horse went even faster, an even faster gallop now toward the edge of the cliff, and finally gathering himself together, just as he was coming to the edge of the cliff, he said, amen, 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 amen. And the horse screeched to halt. Pebbles fell off the edge of the cliff. Oh, he was so relieved. He wiped his forehead. He said, oh, phew. Thank God I'm alive. Praise the Lord. And he came to a very bad end. Now, this may seem like something of a forced transition. Yes. But friends, the reality is that the message this morning is going to be a little bit heavy, so I wanted to start with a little bit of levity. And the other truth is that when Christians have historically talked about the end, when Jesus was going to come again, the second coming of Christ, rather than always doing some good, we have often done some bad. Teachers have whipped congregations into a fury thinking that the end was at hand, they have claimed more than they can know from the scripture. They've talked about specific times and dates that Jesus is going to return confidently, sometimes on televisions, and they haven't done much good that way. Our Christians talking about the end hasn't always ended very well. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that we ought not be concerned about the end and Jesus' second coming. Jesus told us about his coming again for our sanctification for our good. It is the ground and foundation of Christian hope to know that there will be the resurrection of the dead. It's just that Christians have overplayed their hands sometimes, saying they can know things about the end that we don't know. Did you know that almost every single generation of Christians since the ascension of our Lord have believed that the parousia, the coming of Jesus, was going to happen in their generation? It's true. Almost every single generation of Christians has had teachers within it that said, now is the time. Jeez, look at the signs of the times. Things are falling apart. The world is a mess. There's wars and rumors of wars. Kingdom against kingdom. Brother against brother. Father against... Now is the time. As recently as a year and a half ago, one of my favorite professors, former professors, I was at a conference where there was about, I don't know, three to 500 people in the room easily... And he announced with great joy that he believes that Jesus will return before this generation that was in the audience would pass away. And I felt an incredible sense of excitement within me because I love this teacher. And he's looking at the world going, my goodness, are we getting near? It's Jesus is coming soon. Now, is my professor right? <laughs> I hope so. I really hope he is. Does Mark 13 teach us, perhaps, by what it says, that we are in the end times? Well, the answer to this is yes, and yes and yes, and yes and yes, and not necessarily yet. 
That's what I believe Mark 13 is telling us. And I believe that that's what Mark 13 is telling us because it doesn't have one end, one telos point, one culminating point in view, but it actually, beloved of God, has three separate and sometimes overlapping ends in view. That's what I believe is going on in Mark 13. But because this text is so contentious, allow me to make my case. And by the way, even if I'm wrong about the specifics of Mark 13, anything that I'm going to say here is it can be supported, can be supported theologically from the rest of the New Testament. Mark 13 is tricky. But let's take a look at it with some fine detail. And let me try to demonstrate to you that, it's, that it has in view three ends. And then what I want to do after that is to suggest... What this, teen, te, te, what this text overarchingly means for us, okay? What the takeaway is going to be for us. So let's look at this closely. I do invite you to keep your Bibles open. We should be having our Bibles open. Let's remember to have our Bibles open. Mark them up, if you will, uh, so you can go back to it and uh, understand it next time as well. So I think that Mark's going to give us three ends. He's going to give us an end that has has already happened in verses 3 through 22. I believe he's going to give us another end that has already happened and continues to happen right into this very day. And then he's going to tell it, and that's in verses 23 through 29, and then in verses 30 to the end of our text, he's going to tell us about a third end that is yet to come. Everything that you see in verse 1 through 23 describes the first end that has already happened. Notice the subject matter. It's all about the temple. Verse 1. The disciples speak to Jesus about the magnificence of the temple as they're leaving the temple grounds. Then Jesus speaks to them about the temple as he's sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. And then all the way from verse 3 to 23, Jesus describes the events and conditions that will lead to the destruction of the Jerusalem temple and a time of terrible tribulation that will flow out of it. The disciples ask Jesus, as you can see in verse 4, when this will happen and what the signs leading up to it will be. Jesus first then tells them what the signs will be And then he tells them when they can know it is about to happen. And he frames it all under the image of a woman who is pregnant and is in birth pains. The birth pains have a beginning, have a middle, and a culminating point. The labor and delivering time. Verses 7 through 8 are the beginnings of birth pains. 9 through 13 are the middle of birth pains. And then, verses 14 through 22, Jesus tells the disciples about the most painful part when it is labor and delivery time. Just look at this, okay? Verses 7 through 8, the beginning of birth pains. In this period, prior to the destruction of the temple, Jesus says that there will be wars and rumors of wars, nations rising up against nations, kingdom against kingdoms, earthquakes and famines in various places. And it is not clear, by the way, whether Jesus is speaking literally or figuratively, when he refers to earthquakes and famines. Because even today, we'll refer to major political upheavals and or their effects with metaphorical language, or even apocalyptic language, saying, you know, a major earthquake happened in Ottawa today, and we're talking about political events. 
or we'll say there was a famine on Capitol Hill and we're talking about political events, not a literal famine. But Jesus makes it clear in verses 7b and 8b that these things must happen and when they do, don't overreact because, quote, the end is still to come. And these are just the beginning of birth pains. And he's referring to the destruction of the temple. That's stage one. And then in verses 9 through 13, you have the middle of birth pains, and they get a little worse. At this stage, they will be a little more painful because they'll not just be rumors of wars, but now, verses 9 through 13, persecution and strife will break out in bold relief. And in particular, says Jesus, and wanting his disciples to know, persecution will break out against you who are Christians, those who are his disciples. They'll be handed over to both Jews and Gentiles in their kangaroo courts. They'll be flogged and tried and in God's designs be given the opportunity to preach the gospel, but also within their own households. As they come to faith in Christ Jesus, the Messiah, and stand up for him as Lord over all. In this second stage, prior to the destruction of the temple, strife will break out in families to the point of relatives even murdering one another for their different beliefs. Everyone will hate you, says Jesus, on account of me. This, though, is only the second stage, the middling portion of birth pains. And then a third stage will indeed come, as Jesus describes in verses 14 through 22, which will be a time of deep labor and extreme pain. And note very well, Jesus tells the disciples that they can know definitively when this time has come. Unlike at the end of our text in Mark 13, where Jesus tells the disciples that no one knows that day or hour, not even Jesus himself, but only the Father, here Jesus tells the disciples that they can know when the end has come. And they can know because he's not talking about the final end, the parousia, the second coming of Jesus. He is talking in this section about the destruction of the temple. And when can they know when that time has come? What will be the definitive sign? Verse 14. When you see the, quote, abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Abomination that causes desolation. Now, what on earth is that? Well, beloved, this phrase occurs in the book of Daniel. Not less than three times. In Daniel 9... Daniel 11, Daniel 12, and in each instance it refers to the same thing. The abomination that causes desolation is that event when the pagans come to the temple and prevent it from offering the daily sacrifices. So in general, the abomination that causes desolation happens when the pagan overlords, war, the, the war, the military people come and take over the temple, thereby disabling the priests from doing their regular work, offering of sacrifices. And so what Jesus is saying here in our text is that when the temple is overridden by the Roman army, when that happens, you can know that the total destruction of the temple is imminent and the most extreme form of pains for the people of Israel and the world at that time and in that place, we're about to break out. You would not want to be a pregnant woman or a nursing mother at that time. Instead, you're going to want to be the person who has the mobility to run 
as far as you can, as fast as you can, to escape the coming tribulation by way of Roman swords. Now, has this event happened? And have all the things that Jesus says in these three stages of labor and delivery actually happened? Well, yes, beloved, and very precisely all three stages. I reread a history of the years intervening the time when Jesus spoke to the time Jesus refers to at the end of our text. And you know what that time was like according to historians of the day and especially the first century historian known as Josephus? It was like this, and it's very important for us to get a feel, get a sense of the atmosphere and of the history of this day. So let me just give you a little history lesson. The Romans and Jewish elite were taxing the living daylights out of the average Jewish peasant for the, for the Jewish temple complex, as well as the Roman government. And then on top of a heavy, heavy burden of taxes were also tributes. Economic justices were grave, to put it lightly. For example, 40% of a farmer's crops would be taken by the authorities. 40% of their crops, leaving them next to nothing to live on. And remember, this is the days before there were tractors. They had very small plots of ground. To take 40% of a farmer's crop when he had 13 children was to oppress him tyrannically. It was a horrendous thing to do. When Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 5 not to worry about what to eat or what to drink or what they're going to wear, Jesus is saying that not for poetic effect, but because the Jewish peasantry he was actually talking to was worried about what they were going to eat, what they were going to drink, or whether they were going to have something to wear. This was the historical situation in which the broad swath of people, the hoi polloi, the peasantry was living. It was unspeakably oppressive and brutal because of Rome and because of Jewish Jerusalem's elite. And how did the peasantry respond to this situation? Well, for years and years, they responded by just working harder. They endured. They prayed to God to act. But in and around the time of Jesus and afterwards, well into the second century, the Jewish peasantry, the common people, started to gather around would-be messianic figures, popular figures of revolution. They believed and yearned for a new David who would arise, or a new Moses, or a new Joshua, who would, like in the days of old, come in from the desert. Remember John the Baptist goes out into the desert? Remember Jesus, before he starts his public ministry, goes out into the desert? It wasn't only them. It was a symbolic move to demonstrate that in and through me, God's new revolution, God's new exodus moment was about to happen. The Pharaoh who was Rome was about to be toppled. The Goliath that David was about to slay was about to be slain. They were going to retake the land from its unworthy inhabitants, just as in Israel's glory days when God moved for them in power. These figures would be messianic figures patterned after a new David or a new Joshua or a new Moses did arise in increasing numbers. And as they did, the Romans acted predictably when they found out, when they heard Rumors of wars 
and nations rising up against nations. Yes, you hear the echo? The Roman legions often in cahoots with the Jewish authorities. The elite would crush these revolutionaries, these brigands, these would-be messianic figures. By the way, on either side of the cross, Mark says that they're brigands who are hung there. They're not thieves. They were messianic revolutionary figures, and Jesus was in the middle of them. They'd be squished under the heel of Rome, usually crucified to put them to shame and show them that their power is nothing compared to the, the power of Rome. And thus, the Jewish peasantry's apocalyptic dreams, yes, of establishing utopia, the perfect city, the kingdom of God, a world made new, would be crushed. But they were a feisty people, and they did not give up. Josephus tells us as conditions worsened and more taxes came and more levies and more tributes to fund Roman projects, the Jewish peasantry got more and more organized and more and more motivated. And then, finally, in 66 AD, hold on to the date, some 30 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, various factions joined together and they managed to push the Roman legions out of Jerusalem and out of most of Judea and Galilee. It was virtually miraculous, they claimed. They took control of the temple from the powerful Romans and much of the land. They occupied Wall Street, if you will, completely, from the inside, and sent the corrupt authorities packing. They did it by revolutionary means, political organization. And Christians then, as we can see in the book of Acts, Christians who would not get with the program, claiming Jesus was already Lord, were persecuted. Families were indeed divided, according to which Messiah they would follow. In any event, Rome began fighting back and in 70 AD, four years later, decided enough was enough and flexed its military muscle in a big way and with the lead of Titus, repossessed the temple complex and burned it to the ground. Indeed, historically, no stone was left upon another stone. The abomination that causes desolation happened right there for all to see. And by all accounts, the war was a bloodbath. Here are some artists' rendering of the event, if you have that slide available. I don't know if it's cut off in your screen or not, but um, you can see here in the bottom left corner that the candelabra, which would have been in Israel's temple, this is the victors carrying it off which of course would have been grief upon grief for the Jews. And then there's other pictures here. Um, I don't know how much you can see, but they can see everything. Okay. It was carnage. When the Romans decided to act, they acted with the utmost of brutality. And the brutality did not stop there. As one historian says, although the temple was repossessed by Rome, and you could, you could put the screen down, in AD 70, it took another three years of warring to smoke out uh, the resistance in Judea and Galilee. And smoke them out, they did. With crucifixions in their arsenal, it is not hard to believe that thousands upon thousands were crucified in those years. Not hard at all to imagine that Jesus' words were literally true. That for those in those days, it was the worst the world had ever seen. Run to the mountains indeed, 
hard for pregnant mothers and nursing mothers indeed. Beloved, the point is, the whole major part of our text running from verse 3 through 22 where Jesus describes the end is not a description of what we should be looking for expecting. It's already happened. Jesus was referring here to the events surrounding and leading up to and flowing out of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which happened in AD 70, some 40 years after Jesus suffered, died, rose, and ascended into heaven. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't speak about our day or days yet to come. He certainly does. Notice the transition sentence in verse 24 as you continue to look at your Bibles. But in those days, following that distress, and the sense here, given the whole context, is more like, but in those days, and following that distress. Jesus is now referring to the time, it seems, both during and after the time he's just described, and to what would happen in those days. Not once, but continually happen, as an end in and of itself. And what will happen in those days? Three things, says Jesus. First, verse 24 and 25, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Secondly, verse 26, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Third, verse 27, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of of the heavens. Okay, so the cosmic lights will go out, the Son of Man will be seen in glory, and Jesus' elect will be gathered from everywhere. That's what will happen. What does this mean? Well, maybe this is helpful. The description, the first description, is an allusion to Isaiah 34 and describes in apocalyptic language the the destruction of the nations and their armies who stand against God by the wrath of God. All the language about the darkening of the celestial bodies is taken from Isaiah 34, verse 14, and is symbolic about the nation's destruction, characterizing them as the sun, the stars, the moon. The second description is an allusion to a phrase in Daniel chapter 7 and refers to the enthronement of one who is like a son of man or to a son of man ascended or um, enthroned in heavenly glory and the third description describes the salvation of the nations from every tribe tongue and people and when did these three things start happening well according to mark they began happening at the cross of christ when you may remember as jesus is crucified darkness comes over the whole land. Yes, the celestial lights go out. Somehow the judgment of the nations is happening in the person of Jesus on the cross and the wrath of God is being exhibited and put forth in that place against the nations. And then they continued to happen and become fuller when Jesus, after rising from the dead, ascended into heaven. Indeed, remember, as the Lord of glory, as the Son of Man who enters into his heavenly glory as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And then these things continued to happen, and in particular in earnest, after the destruction of the temple, 
and the hopeless of many Jews with the gospel going out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth as the ministry of Paul was a first incarnation of. The Gentiles now were being brought in as God's elect because of the work of the Son of God on the Christ who died for the sin of the nations. Can you see how this end came? It began with the cross of Christ. It continues to work out in the world today as the gospel goes out and the nations are saved, brought into God's eternal family. This end is still with us today, folks. Every time the gospel is heard, understood, and embraced, Jesus, the Son of Man, the enthroned Lord of glory, is encountered, and the nations are coming to him. This continues to happen today. But this will continue to occur until the final end, the second coming of Jesus. Notice Jesus' words in verse 30 now, as we look at this end that is still to come. Truly I tell you, he says, this generation, and remember he's speaking to his own disciples, will not pass away until all these things have, happening, have happened. That's right. Jesus did die for the nations. He has begun to gather the nations in as the one who is the son of man. Those things have happened. They continue to happen. But then look at 31 and 32. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about that day, no one knows the hour or the day. And when he says that day, we need to ask, what that day? What that day are you talking about, Jesus? Well, the antecedent is when the heavens and the earth pass away. It's not about the generations that he just talked about, which will not pass away before these things have happened. But heaven and earth will pass away, even though his words won't pass away. And that day, that day, when the heavens and the earth pass away, that's what he's talking about. No one knows about that day. No one knows about that hour. You can't know. Your claims to say that we are definitively in that time, you can't know that. Jesus himself doesn't know that. That age, that end, that culminating point is yet to come. The second coming of Jesus. Okay, so I think that at least it's plausible, okay, and I'm not being dogmatic about it, but I think it's plausible that we see in view in our text these three different ends. One that has already happened, the destruction of the temple. One that has happened and continues to happen as the nations are indeed gathered in because of the cross of Christ in, under the lordship of the Son of Man. It has happened, continues to happen, and then the second coming is coming again. The question, however, is, what is this meaning for us today? And I'd love to take an awful lot of time talking about this because I think it's very, very important. What is, what's the purpose of this text? Well, beloved, I want to suggest to you that Jesus' purpose here is actually, irreducibly, political. Just look at the exhortations of Jesus in all three sections of our text, no matter which end is in view. Look at the constant theme, the repetition. Verse 5, watch out. Verse 9, be on your guard. Verse 21, be on your guard. Verse 33, be on your guard. And then verse 24, through to the end, again and again, keep watch, watch, keep watch, watch out. <laughs> watch out for what? Be on your guard for what? Well, it's deeply political. Back to verses 5 through 6. To see what Jesus is warning us about. War, watch out that no one deceives you. 
Many will come in my name claiming I am he or ego me. It's God's self-designating name and will deceive many. Or over to verse 21 and 22. At that time, if someone says to you, look, here is the Messiah or look, there he is. Do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. You see what's going on here? You see what Jesus is concerned about? It is irreducibly political. He's concerned with the good of the polis, the city, and our engagement and involvement in it. This becomes clear when we look at the historical situation which was closest to him, about which I've already said a bit in that historical review. As we said, the conditions of life for the average person in Jewish Palestine was abysmal in Jesus' day, with the gap between the rich and the poor miles wide and ever widening, and the oppressive, draconic, tyrannical structures in place, keeping them down and robbing them with brutalizing taxes and tributes. In response to this, the Jewish peasantry started to become political in their own way and look for modern-day heroes to fight for them and redeem them, to win them a better life, and moreover, to bring in the kingdom of God in its fullness. Who could blame them? Who could blame them? They had been raised on stories about David slaying Goliath and eventually becoming king. Stories about Moses defeating Pharaoh. Stories about Joshua, the mighty warrior, marching around the wicked city Jericho and toppling it over in God's power. And then those after him also taking over the land, promised to them by warfare, bringing in the land of milk and honey. So why not trust God to do the same thing today? To bring in the kingdom of God by revolutionary means. And it didn't matter. It could be violent. It could be miraculous. And many were doing just that. They were getting involved with these messianic figures and placing their hopes on them. Their hope for political revolution. And Jesus foresaw that his disciples would be tempted and pressured to follow them as well, to get behind the cause with all of their weight, to take up the struggle against the power of Rome. Come, their contemporaries would say, and get behind Simon Ben-Gorah. He is our new Moses, about to defeat our new Pharaoh, the Romans. Or come, they would say later, entering into the second century, stand arm, or Yes, stand arm to arm with us as our new leader, Jesus bar Akakba, a new David to fight our new Goliath, will help us take the land. Fight the good fight with us. Fight for utopia again. A new land of milk and honey, of perfect justice, peace, and equality for all. Join the revolution. But Jesus is saying to his disciples, when this happens and you have other people who are not me, saying, I am the Messiah, or I am the servant of the great I am. I will bring the kingdom of God to earth at last. Do not follow them. No matter how much you are pressured to, no matter how much you are tempted to, do not pin your hopes on them. And why does Jesus say this? Because Jesus loves oppression. We've seen how oppressive the time was. Because he resists resistance movements. Because he's not a revolutionary? Because Jesus is apolitical? Because Jesus believes violence is always and everywhere wrong? 
because he wants his servants to be perfectly pacifistic at all times and all ways, never fighting for anything? Is this why he says what he says? I don't think so. In the first instance, I think it's much deeper than this. I think that this goes right to the heart of the gospel. I think Jesus warns his disciples as he does here, friends, because Jesus knew that while engaging in those struggles might produce results in the short game, engaging in those sorts of struggles will not end well in the long game. And they will not end well in the long game because those sorts of struggles miss the true nature of the struggle. Jesus' contemporaries thought Rome was the problem. Those who lived after Jesus thought Rome was the problem, along with the Jewish elite. But Rome, as Rome, wasn't the biggest problem. The Jewish elite, as the Jewish elite, weren't the biggest problem. The biggest problem exists much closer to home, according to Jesus, in the human heart. The real and biggest political struggle is not, first of all, for the city or kingdom out there, but for the city and kingdom in here in the chests of human beings, which instead of bowing to the Lord God of all as King of kings and Lord of lords and living out his will, we bow down to other gods that are no gods at all as king and live out our own will and eventually bring the chaos along with it. Until the battle for the human heart is won, friends, all other battles won't mean a thing. Yes, power may move from the hands of Caesar in Rome or Pontius Pilate to Jewish resistance fighters as it did. But you know what happened when it did? In 66 through 70 AD, as Josephus himself records, the Jews amidst themselves in those four years started fighting amongst themselves about who should be in control. They stayed the chaos of Rome only to unleash another form of chaos. They exchanged one politically corrupt system for another politically corrupt system because it's run by humans with broken hearts, not yet redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And the same will be true of, for us today. We need to keep watch and be on our guard about how we are politically engaged how easy it is for us in a world where so many things are going wrong to start thinking that the biggest problem is who is in control and that the best and first salvation is to start political revolutions of our own led by modern-day heroic figures. We've seen versions of this playing out in our world, I think, today as even Christians are dividing over what their political allegiances are in the civic realm. Problem is, unless the deepest political revolution of Jesus is won first, unless, that is to say, issues of the human heart have been dealt with all the way to the bottom, it might be better, get better for a while, but within the undulations of history, it will just go south again. For sin will have its way. We have seen with now dead revolutionary movements of our own day in the Soviet Union, in Germany, who thought they were going to bring in the perfect land of peace and justice. We see how sin does indeed have its way when we follow our worldly heroes with their worldly visions as though they're some kind of new messiahs. Bloodbath has followed bloodbath. And so if we hear people in our own day promising to make all things new and bring in the perfect world, beware. Beware. Don't believe it. 
For there is and only ever will be one true Messiah. And he is the Messiah who has died for our sins. And he gives us a new heart by his spirit. And who will judge all things in the future? And you know, friends, if we don't understand this in our own day and cling to the politics of Scripture, which says that Jesus is the world's only true hero and the perfect world and revolution will only come through him and him alone, as he makes people new, we will be in danger of missing the entire truth about Jesus Christ. We'll say, praise the Lord, and end up falling off a cliff. Mark actually seems to embed this truth deeply, if winsomely, at the end of our text. You see what Jesus says there in verses 35 through 36? He says, watch, 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 so that you are ready for God's coming. The owner of the house is coming back. You need to be vigilant because you don't know the hour when he'll come back. And then Jesus adds, I think with a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, whether he will return in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows at or at dawn, if he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. Now, why these specific descriptors? Well, do you find it interesting that Mark, as Mark 13 gives way to Mark 14 and 15, and as Jesus enters into his passion, we are first told of how he serves a meal his disciples do not understand in the evening. And then he goes up on the Mount of Olives to pray with them when it's very, very late. In other words, it's midnight. And then after he is arrested, Peter denies him at the hour that the rooster crows. And then he is brought before the chief priests, specifically, we are told, at dawn. And all of this happens, of course, in the context where the disciples who are told to stay awake and keep vigil, keep falling asleep, three times on the Mount of Olives. You see what's going on? They didn't understand that in Jesus, God was coming to reclaim his house from his stewards because they didn't understand that this was the battle that God needed to fight, the battle for the human heart, to provide it with forgiveness by death on a cross and to renew it by the gift of the Spirit at the same time. The greatest revolution and the political revolution we need is the revolution of the human heart, surrendered to God, forgiven, filled with the Spirit, ready to obey. The Messiah we need, friends, is the Messiah who deals with our heart. And that Messiah is Jesus. So if anyone comes saying or pretending to bring in the perfect world, don't believe it. Do not throw all your weight in with them, even though, and we'll get more to this next week, we, we work for change. We work for the kingdom of God now. This is a huge nuance that we'll get more into next week. But we need to resist that politics of revolution in the first instance. And instead, we do our part by preaching the gospel, which can change hearts. And from that point, we seek the good of the world with great humility. And it is with great, profound humility about what we can accomplish. For the world will not be made perfect by us. It will not Jesus will perfect it. Only the suffering servant of God will bring in the perfect world. This is our hope. And as we work with him, we can know that our labor is not in vain. And it is to this end that we work. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.